We're back with another episode of Aghast the Past 1892. On this episode, some of the more interesting crimes from the first few days of October. Let's jump right into the fray, shall we? First up, the legendary Dalton Gang. Made up of three brothers, Grat, Bob, and Emmett Dalton, along with outlaws Dick Broadwell and Bill Powers. They decided to do the unthinkable, rob two banks at the same time. Their target was the town of Coffeyville, Kansas. Normally, I'd take the opportunity here to do some background on the gang, but I will be covering them in detail on an upcoming episode of Most Notorious. So we will save the wild lives of these brothers and their cohorts for a later date. Let's go to the Catholic Tribune, October 8th, page 1. The headline, Their Last Raid. The Dalton Gang has been exterminated, wiped off the face of the earth. Caught like rats in a trap, they were today shot down. But not until four citizens of this place yielded up their lives in the work of extermination. Six of the gang rode into town this morning and robbed two banks of this place. Their raid had become known to the officers of the law, and when the bandits attempted to escape, they were attacked by the marshal's posse. In the battle which ensued, four of the desperados were killed outright, and one was so badly wounded that he has since died. Others escaped, but are being hotly pursued. Of the attacking party, four were killed, one was fatally, and two were seriously wounded. The dead are Bob Dalton, Desperado, Grat Dalton, Desperado, John Moore, Desperado, Joseph Evans, Desperado, C.T. Connolly, Marshal of Coffeyville, George Cubine, Merchant, J.W. Brown, Shoemaker, Fatally Wounded, Emmett Dalton, Desperado, Thomas G. Ayers, Cashier of the First National Bank, Lucius Baldwin, Clerk in Brown's Shoe Store, Slightly Wounded, T.A. Reynolds, Citizen, Louis Dietz, Citizen. Dick Broadwell and Bill Powers, by the way, were going by aliases, if you hadn't guessed already. It was nine o'clock this morning when the Dalton gang rode into town. They came in two squads of three each, and passing through the unfrequented streets and deserted alleys, rendezvoused in the alley in the rear of the First National Bank. They quickly tied their horses and without losing a moment's time, proceeded to make an attack upon the banks. Robert Dalton, leader of the gang, and Emmett, his brother, went to the First National Bank, and the other four, under the leadership of Texas Jack, or John Moore, went to the private bank of C.M. Congdon and Company. 
In the meantime, an alarm had already been given. When the marshal was collecting his forces, the bandits, all innocent of the trap that was being laid for them, were proceeding deliberately with their work of robbing the banks. Texas Jack's band had entered Congdon's bank and with their Winchesters leveled at Cashier Ball and Teller Carpenter, had ordered them to throw up their hands. Then Texas Jack searched them for weapons, while the other three desperados kept them covered with their rifles. Finding them to be unarmed, Cashier Ball was ordered to open the safe. The cashier explained that the safe door was controlled by a time lock and that it could not, by any means short of dynamite, be opened before its time was up, which would be 10 o'clock or in about 20 minutes. We will wait, said the leader, and he sat down at the cashier's desk. How about the money drawers, he suddenly asked, and jumping up, he walked around to the cages of the paying and receiving teller and taking money amounting in all to less than $300, dumped it into a flour sack with which he was supplied and again sat down while the time lock slowly ticked off seconds and the hands of the clock tardily moved towards the hour of 10 o'clock. Bob and Emmett Dalton were having better luck at the First National Bank. When they entered the bank, they found within Cashier Ayers, his son, Albert Ayers, and Teller W.H. Shepard. None of them were armed, and with leveled revolvers, the brother bandits easily intimidated them. Albert Ayers and Teller Shepard were kept under the muzzles of Emmett Dalton's revolvers, while Bob Dalton forced cashier heirs to strip the safe, vault, and cash drawers of all money contained in them and placed it in a sack which had been brought along for the purpose. When the bandits emerged from the banks, they unexpectedly found themselves face to face with armed men who were determined they should not escape. The battle opened at once. It was brief, fierce, and decisive. But one of the robbers escaped death, and he is being closely pursued and cannot elude capture. Jim Spears, a livery stable keeper, with his Winchester rifle, killed three of the outlaws in as many seconds. This created such a diversion that other citizens were enabled to get close enough to kill another of the robbers. Petitions to the Pacific Express Company and Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad Company are being circulated, asking that they pay the large reward for the death of the Daltons to the families of the murdered citizens. Here's a terrible story out of St. Joseph, Missouri, published in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, page 2, October 4th. The title is Brutal Wife Murder. 
October 3rd, James W. Ward, the public scavenger, made a brutal assault on his wife last night, and the woman died from the effects of her injuries this afternoon. Ward came home drunk about 11 o'clock last night, and his wife upbraided him for his behavior. This angered him, and he attempted to strike her. Mrs. Ward ran out of the house and into the street where her husband overtook her and beat her in a terrible manner. Ward first struck the woman in the face, felling her to the earth. He then kicked her in the side, and when she attempted to cry for help, choked her until she was black in the face. After Mrs. Ward had become too weak to speak and was nearly dead from lack of breath, the brute released his hold upon her throat and deliberately jumped up and down upon her stomach until she was unconscious. Then he left her for dead and returned to the saloons in the south part of the city where he had spent the afternoon. Mrs. Ward was found sometime later by neighbors who were attracted by her groans and was carried into her residence. A physician was called and pronounced her injuries fatal. She died today. Same paper, same page. Another doozy. This one happened in Fremont, Iowa, as the headline succinctly states, double tragedy in Iowa. October 3rd, one of the most cold-blooded murders which ever occurred in this vicinity was enacted Saturday night between 10 and 11 o'clock, two miles east of Fremont, near the old Reinhardt farm. Gus Helms, being the murderer, and his two cousins, Byron and Barnaby Clark, the victims. Some years ago, the estate of the Clark family got into the courts, and from that time, there was a distinct feud between Guy Helms and his cousins. The Clark boys were inoffensive, however, and did not pay much attention to Helms, but he insisted on harboring in his mind the old grudge, and the breach became wider and wider. Helms lives a mile and a half southeast of Fremont. He has a wife and four children, and has the reputation of being a very quarrelsome man and tough character. His father is one of the wealthiest farmers in this vicinity. The Clark brothers and Helms were in town Saturday, and it was evident from the way Helms acted that trouble was brewing. He left town before the Clark boys did, and going east of Reinhardt's farm, borrowed a revolver from a neighbor and then laid in wait for his victims. It was after 10 o'clock when they came on foot. Suddenly, Helms sprang out of a clump of bushes where he was in hiding, flourishing his revolver. Hello, Gus, said the younger Clark. 
didn't I tell you, retorted Helms, never to speak to me again? And with an oath, he began shooting. His first ball was deadly. It struck Byron Clark in the left shoulder and deflected through his heart, killing him immediately. The second shot was also fatal, but the victim, Barn Clark, lived a few hours to tell the story. He ran and crawled to the home nearby of his uncle, Oliver Helms, to give the alarm. Helms, not satisfied with the bloody deed, followed and sent another shot at Clark through the screen of his uncle's house. His victim, wounded and bleeding, escaped through the back door, ran a short distance and fell, and Helms, thinking him dead, abandoned the pursuit. Helms then disappeared, and a posse started in pursuit. At Sigourney, he abandoned his attempt to conceal himself and surrendered to the officers. The Clark brothers, with their sisters, lived on a farm, were industrious and well-liked. Helms, on the other hand, was designated as one of the meanest men in the world and was mixed up in shooting scrapes before. About four years ago, at a dance near the same place, his brother-in-law, Brad Roach, was shot. And it was current at that time that Helms was the man who did it. Helms married the sister of Frank Hackett, who is now serving a life sentence in the penitentiary for killing a man by the name of Fowler, who was mixed up in a scandal with Hackett's sister. There is the greatest excitement in the neighborhood concerning the affair, and threats of lynching are heard. Helms will undoubtedly be guarded in jail at Sigourney, so that the law will have its course. He cannot escape punishment as severe, at any rate, as that of his brother-in-law, who killed Fowler. And another story, same paper, same page. This one out of Bristol, Tennessee. John McNeil and John Weston, officers from Lee County, who arrived here today, told the story of the escape of the notorious outlaw Daniel Mabe, who was sent up from Lee County for 12 years for horse stealing. They had him and another prisoner en route from Richmond, Virginia. When the train neared the city, he asked to be allowed to go into the water closet for a moment. When once inside, he raised the window and leaped out into the darkness while the train was making 25 miles an hour. A diligent search was set up for him, but he was not found. Governor McKinney has offered a reward for his recapture. Mabe was a member of the famous Barnard Gang, five of whom were sentenced to be hanged in Hancock for the cowardly murder of Tillman Sutton, a peaceable farmer. The sentence was commuted to life imprisonment, 
and afterward Governor Taylor pardoned him. A wild and violent night over Niagara Falls. For the final story on this episode, courtesy of New York's The Sun newspaper, page 1, October 3rd. The headline, Mad Combat in Mid-Air. Niagara Falls, October 2nd. Two painters engaged in a fight on a slender scaffold suspended from the cantilever bridge last evening. A gang had been engaged by the Grand Trunk Railroad to repaint the cables, guys, and stays of the bridge and had let themselves down by the usual hanging platforms. They were 200 feet above the water's level in the gorge. One of the two who quarreled was Joseph Greaves, a French-Canadian from Montreal, and the other was William Gamel, also a Canadian from the vicinity of St. Catharines. They had some words which attracted the attention of nearby workmen who were horrified to see Gamel pick up a hatchet and attack Greaves. Greaves grappled with his assailant, the scaffold swinging to and fro, and Gamel, who was much heavier and stronger than his companion, was fast pressing him to the edge. When Greaves reached for a rope to save himself from being pitched headlong into the abyss, then Gamel struck Greaves three times with the hatchet, aiming each time for the head. Two blows were dodged and fell on Greaves' neck. The third split his skull behind the left ear. He dropped like a log off the scaffold, falling about 20 feet where he caught in some intersecting guy ropes, out of reach of his antagonist. He then clutched at the wire cables and began to climb hand over hand to the bridge floor, the blood pouring from his wounds. He had no sooner thrown himself on the bridge than Gamel pounced on him again, but by this time other workmen had reached the spot and prevented downright murder. If I catch you again, I'll kill you, hissed Gamel at his victim as he hurled his hatchet into the river and fled. Greaves was picked up and carried to the Canadian shore where his wounds were dressed. He had received a severe blow, severing an artery, and the hemorrhage was so copious that the surgeons say his condition is extremely precarious. Gamel was last seen boarding a Michigan Central train. He is an old sailor, weighs 225 pounds, is of medium height, sandy complexion, and was dressed in a suit of paint-daubed brown clothes with slouch hat. Canadian officers have notified Buffalo to look for him.
This ends another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. Until next time.